All right, so Ken and I have been doing this little sermon series that I'm wrapping up today. It's on the um, helpful and healing scriptures. And so I'm gonna come to one that I just think it's like one of the greatest hits of scriptures, of scripture, Psalm 23, right? It's short, it's like six verses long, and I would encourage you to memorize it if you haven't already. Um, I passed, or there were some uh, copies of Psalm 23 when you came in. If you didn't get one, Rachel's got some extras. And she can pass those out. I borrowed Ken's technique and I did one translation on the front and one translation on the back. So the King James Version is the version that most people know if you like learned it growing up. And we'll read that together later in the meditation. But on the other side is a translation by Robert Alter, which I think is the best translation of the Hebrew today. And that's the one that I'm going to use to preach from this morning if you're wanting to follow along. So I'm going to read first the entire psalm from the Robert Alter translation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows, he makes me lie down. By quiet waters, he guides me. My life, he brings back. He leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. You set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the first four centuries of Christianity, the most common symbols for our faith that we have found in art and in the catacombs are those of the good shepherd, the vine, and the fish. And the good shepherd is an image of God that Jesus himself adopts. You know, in the Psalms, there are a lot of pictures of God, and most of them use military imagery. So as you read through the Psalms, you'll see things like God as a fortress, as a rock, a deliverer, a high tower, a refuge, a shield, a stronghold. And that's the majority imagery in the Psalms. But there's also a minority imagery of God that includes God as a shepherd, God as a woman nursing her baby, and God as a good father who is gracious and compassionate. So as a Jewish man, it's pretty likely that Jesus would have been asked to memorize the Psalms by the time he was about 12 years old. So he would have known them in and out, and it's interesting to me that nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus ever describe God as a fortress, a rock, a high tower, or a stronghold. In fact, those images aren't used at all in the New Testament, either by Jesus or by anyone else. And I don't think that invalidates those ways of describing God. They made sense in the context of a people who were often you know, besieged by various people and armies and raiders that were neighboring to them. Um, so this idea of God being a mighty protector is, is perfectly helpful and orthodox. But I do think it's interesting that Jesus chooses this minority imagery for God in the Psalms for his own teachings. Like even if you look just at Luke 15, we see God as the good shepherd, God as a woman who lost a coin that she's looking for, and then God as a good father who's welcoming home his wandering son. So I think that perhaps Jesus elevates these more nurturing perspectives of God so that they balance out this picture of this more sort of distant, powerful protector. And what these images do is they, they lend like an intimate feel to this human um, divine relationship, right? And it's this intimacy that Jesus would have learned from Psalms just like Psalm 23. 
And so the author that is um, attributed to writing Psalm 23 is David, King David. He was a shepherd before he became the king of Israel. And so as a young shepherd, he would have known that there's a basic set of wants and needs that a shepherd provides for their sheep. Right? Food, water, peace, freedom from fear of predators, rescue when they're lost. And we can see this sort of permeation of this idea that God just provides for our basic needs so that we don't have to have any concerns or cares. We see this in Jesus' teachings, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And I did want to read a little bit longer passage than I often do here from Matthew 6. And I thought this might be helpful if any of you have been feeling anxious or stressed to just sort of relax and let these words from the Sermon on the Mount just sort of pour into you. This is Jesus talking. He says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, or about your body, what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? God, like, cut to the core, Jesus. Man, why do you worry about clothes? Sorry, I had one of those thoughts run through my mind that's out of my um, notes. Have you guys heard of Visco Girls? Is that how you say it? Gosh. Sorry, my nieces are totally into that look, and it's like, why do you worry about clothes? If you haven't, Google it. We had to Google it. See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like a Visco Girl. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow it's gone, how much more will God clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And what we notice here is that like, there's no promises of like perfect health, There's no promises of life going really smoothly for us. If we trust this good shepherd, there's no promise of getting to drive like a Tesla. In fact, it's the contrary, right? Jesus says, look, every day is going to have enough trouble of its own for you to be worrying even more. And in Psalm 23, David talks about being led on paths of justice. And then those paths of justice going through the valley of the shadow of death And he talks about eating while surrounded by enemies, right? It's an acknowledgement, I think, that life can be really hard. But what we're told here isn't that God will make life really easy, but that God will take care of our essential needs and will be with us in the highs and the lows. You know, this picture of sheep being tended by a good shepherd, it reminds me of a time um, when I was living out in the western mountains of China. And some friends and I, we were, we were driving out through the mountains because we were going to stay at a Tibetan um, Buddhist monastery. And so we stopped to have a picnic along the way because there, you know, there weren't like little towns that you could stop in to eat. So we had packed a picnic and we, we just pulled over you know, on, to the side of the road and we hiked up a little ways and we set out some blankets and we pulled out our food. We were just eating and just, just kind of relaxing. Um, and all of a sudden I heard this beautiful Tibetan song coming from the side of a mountain. And as I listened to it, I realized, oh, it's like, oh, it's a shepherd over there who's singing. And so he sang a couple of lines, and then from the mountain on the other side of us, the other shepherd took it up and started singing. 
And then after that guy was done, there was another shepherd who was like down, down the way and he started singing. And then this went on for about an hour and they just took turns singing to each other. And it was always really amazing to me just, um, just how much you could hear, uh, how much resonation there is in the mountains, even when people are on different peaks. And for me, I thought, this was a good day. You know, that was like one of those days that just like brought so much life back into a weary soul. A society of, in grass meadows, he makes me lie down and by quiet waters guides me. My life he brings back. I think most often we hear that last line translated, he restoreth my soul. Right? But that doesn't quite capture the Hebrew. Robert Alter says the Hebrew word there that's used, nefesh, it doesn't actually mean soul, as in like he restores my soul, but it means something more like life breath or life. Right? So this, he restores my life. And the idea is more like a person who has like almost stopped breathing. You're just so weary. And then all of a sudden it's like... This idea that life and breath just refills you so that you're able to continue going. The idea is that God leads us into these places and these seasons of rest that we're allowed to enjoy, right? To not always be working on our spiritual self-improvement or always going out and fighting for justice. That can, be, that can make you really weary if you don't learn to rest and have these times where God can just breathe into us, right? To just revel in beauty and count our blessings. You know, one of our American myths that we have, it tells us that we are what we earn. Right? We are what we earn. What we work for is what we deserve. You know, as kids, many of us um, earn an allowance for helping out around the house. I don't know if we've got any middle schoolers in here. I don't think we do right now. Does anybody get an allowance or got an allowance growing up? Right? We had to get a certain set of, I got a dollar. Like, how cheap is that? Sorry. <laughs> get an allowance for helping out around the house. If you work hard, you earn good grades. If you get a promotion at work, right, it's because you put in more hours and you, you're committed to the job, right? You earn it. On a little more personal level, we learn that affection is offered to us on the basis of attractiveness, which can be, quote unquote, earned to an extent. They're working out and dieting and making money and buying fashionable clothes and investing in music and Homes that make us more appealing potential partners, right? So people will swipe right, not left. I don't know, swipe right. And this same myth tells us that people's income can provide critical information about their character, right? about their moral fiber. And we learn things like rejection and loneliness and isolation, that those are the consequences of failure. We learn that being poor is something that we deserve because we didn't work hard enough. If you've ever been poor, as I have been at a time in my life, that is not because I wasn't working hard enough. Right? We learned that people who receive entitlement and benefits are crafty manipulators of the system. Right? And certainly not everybody believes these things. Probably many of us in here don't. But the general myth is an undercurrent of American culture. Right? But we're told here this isn't the way that God sees us and measures us. Right? God doesn't judge our worth, worth on the basis of our performance. And that's really countercultural in the American culture, it's counterintuitive. And I think sometimes even when we know it up here, like we know that, we oftentimes don't know it here. And I think it's because when most people in most situations on most days of our lives treat us on the basis of how we look and act and perform, it's difficult not to project that onto God. And it's hard not to believe that God can treat us on the basis of how we look and act and perform. 
And then the message is this, God is good, you're bad, try harder, right? The harder you try, the more spiritual you'll be, the better you'll be. The thing is, that's just not how God works. Like if you follow God for any amount of time, you'll see God often uses the people who are the least likely to be used by God. And Jesus went around blessing all the wrong sorts of people. And some of us here, including me, can identify with being called the wrong sort of people. Or some of us here are known as being friends with the wrong sorts of people, right? But this is who Jesus hung out with. He hung out with the people who found themselves outside of the most respectable faith communities. We don't earn our place at the table of God by being like, you know, the VP of prayer or the VP of Bible studies. All we have to do is to believe that we are, in fact, loved and that we are worthy. And it's not to say that things like prayer and Bible study aren't important, right? Those are things that help us to learn about and to connect with this spirit of love. But any of you guys who have walked this kind of path for any length of time, you know that there are just different spiritual seasons in our lives that we learn to become attuned to, right? We've had seasons where I feel beckoned to pray more. I like the way Ken talks about it. He talks about prayer as being appetite-driven, right? And it just feels like a little invitation, a desire to do it more. I once went through a season, this was a a long time ago, um, maybe two months long, where I felt invited by the Spirit to wake up like super early, like 5 a.m., which is really early for me, and read through the Psalms and focus particularly on a couple of different themes in the Psalms that were personal for me. Right? And so the idea is we don't have to say yes to those invitations, but we find that if you do, if you lean into some of those desires that seem like, oh, that's kind of a weird thought, that sometimes you can take away something that will be particularly helpful for you. And part of God's grace and generosity is that we're designed to have seasons sometimes of just being, right? Of just enjoying God's goodness, where we don't have to earn taking a nap in the grass. In grass meadows, he makes me lie down. By quiet waters guides me. My life he brings back. Now that translation of makes me lie down, it can kind of sound like the shepherd is like using force, right? But that's not how sheep actually work. They're a little bit more like horses, You can't actually make a sheep lie down like a dog. They'll only lie down if they're well-fed and if they are well-watered and if they feel safe. And so the idea is if you feel called and beckoned to just kind of rest in God's presence for a season, that God is a shepherd who will make sure that you're safe and that you're tended to in that time when you feel like you're so burdened that you almost can't breathe. So I want to take a look together at this next part. So if you've got that Robert Alter translation, it starts with, he leads me. He leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. You set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil. My cup overflows. So the first thing I notice here is that God leads us on pathways of justice, and those paths might place us in death's shadow. So doing the work of justice in the world is not safe work. And God's pathway of justice might place you in a school district that's rampant with systemic evil. Or it might land you in a company that needs integrity like a desert needs rain. God's path will lead you at some time or another into a place of risk in order to help reveal the one who causes death to flee. 
I liked how there, I have a pastor friend who was, she actually used this psalm this week that was in a way that was really helpful to me. Um, I'll just tell her story. I like going off the cuff here a little. So she's a Disciples of Christ pastor down in Houston, Texas. And as a young pastor, she got married, had a baby, and she's very public about this. So I think it's fine to, to share this. Um, so her first husband got accused of being a pedophile. And he insisted that he wasn't. And she believed him. And she kept fighting with him, with him, with him. She even believed him. He pleaded not guilty. She stood by his side. And as soon as he was convicted, he confessed. And she talked about how those next couple of years, having a baby and all of this fall apart and trying to lead a church while all of this was going on, she said, I just felt like I was in death's shadow. I wanted to die. And here she is, 10 years later, she's remarried. She's quite happy and adjusted and a great pastor. Um, And she said, you know, I don't often go back into that place that feels like death's shadow, like that was a trauma that I've kind of healed and moved on from. But every now and again, God will bring somebody into my life who is in a similar place to what I know. She goes, and so sometimes I have to go back into that valley because I know the way out. And I thought that was a really um, helpful picture that some of you might find helpful. Because I know I've had my own traumas and some of you have had yours, and sometimes we can just go back into that space for a season or a brief period so that we can walk alongside someone who also needs a little bit of help knowing the way out of it. And there are two things to remember, according to this psalm, as we walk these pathways of justice. Right? First, we're not alone. God is with us. There will be other lovers of justice with, those, with us in those spaces. I like what Kenneth Bailey said. He said, no sheep is ever taken out to pasture alone. That cost of labor would be way too prohibitive. He talks about how in this highly industrialized Western world, the importance of community, we often forget it when matters of faith are under discussion. But in the East, the sense of community is so strong that the importance of the individual in that community can be neglected. But both of those are indispensable. When one is on stage, the other is nearby, just off stage. And so I liked this this picture that he talked about being on stage and off stage. Because when the psalmist here is talking about himself, even though I go through the valley of the veil of death's shadow, right? It's focusing on him. He's talking about his own individual journey. But then just off stage, there's also other sheep who are there, right? This sheep isn't alone. It's this communion of the saints. It's the people who are able to come back in and walk with you out of that. It's the ancestors who went before us who are cheering us on and supporting us, right? So first, we're never alone. And the second thing to remember is that God is not only with us, but serves us in those trying spaces. And this sounds a little bit wrong on some level, doesn't it? This idea of God serving humans. And I think it could have a little bit of that same shock value as like when Jesus got down and washed um, the feet of his disciples, right? It's this picture of God that is just stunningly humble, So this God serves us by protecting us with a rod and with a staff. I think of this a little bit like God is our private security guard. You know, the rod is a thicker, it's like a mace, right? It's a little bit of a thicker stick, it's heavier, and it's used for fending off things like lions and bears and wolves. And then in the other hand, there's a staff that's taller, and it's like, you know, what you think of with the little crook at the top of it. And that is one that's used for rescuing the sheep when they, you know, get off course a little bit. I don't know if you guys have ever um, seen sheep who are walking and grazing on steep cliffs. If you haven't, that is totally worth a Google because you'll see these total um, like rock sheer 
cliffs that just have little crags on them, and there'll be sheep that are in the middle of that, grazing on these little tufts of grass, and you're like, how in the world did you ever get yourself into that space? And sometimes they can't find their way back, right? And so the idea is, is even if we're just going after a little food or a little bit of water when we're hungry and it feels like there's nothing that can satisfy us and we're doing our best to follow the lead, it is inevitable that we're gonna get off track now and again. And this might sound a little bit insulting, but sheep are dumb. Sheep are dumb animals. And I think the psalmist here is implying that sometimes we're really dumb when it comes to our own well-being. We get ourselves into all kinds of trouble, but not to worry. We have a good shepherd who can rescue us when it seems like the hole that we have dug for ourselves is far too deep. So this God protects us with a rod and a staff. This God also sets a table for us. You know, there are some traditions where humans spread the table for their gods, and they leave mounds of food and fruit and yogurt and alcohol in these temples to offerings of various deities. But in this psalm, the idea here is that God spreads the table for humans and prepares the food and the wine for us. And this table is set in the presence of our enemies, right? So like when things are tense at work, or when you're sitting at Thanksgiving with family members who are all Trump supporters, (laughs) there is a place that you can access that is like existing in the eye of a hurricane. And in that place, there's warm food and hot tea in the presence of God. Now, if you've ever been in a place where you really, um, like something terrifying, like the day I came out is always the one that comes to my mind, just feeling this, I remember feeling this almost like a warm bubble around me. It's just kind of this like, it was okay. And it's that place, it's that way of experience, this calm, joyous, I don't know, joyous might be too strong of a word, maybe peaceful, um, thick presence of God, regardless of what storm is going on in your life. That's the place that we're talking about right here, that the psalmist is talking about. Like when we were singing the song this morning, through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you, it is well. That song, It Is Well With My Soul, was written by a man who had just lost his family and his home. You know, this God is with us even in the worst of things. And in this place, we're told God moistens our head with oil. Right, so the psalmist is telling us that God likes to pamper us in the valley of death's shadow. That pamper might sound like an odd word also, but this is the idea of Psalm 23. Robert Alter says, you moisten my head with oil. That verb... Addition isn't the one that's used for anointing. So, you know, sometimes when we pray for people, we use oil or when we dedicate babies. It's like a sacramental ritual that we do. He says that this verb here is not one that's used like that, but the associations here of you moisten my head with oil are actually more sensual rather than sacramental. He says etymologically, it means something like to make luxuriant. Right, so this verse then, it lists all of the physical elements of a happy life, a table laid out with good things to eat, and a head of hair that is well rubbed with olive oil, and an overflowing cup of wine. Right, so there's safety, and there's food, and there's drink, and there's rest, and it's like having a spa day in the midst of chaos. And the picture being painted is of a God who is incredibly tender, and hospitable, and kind, That God does the things for us that we might do for the people that we love the most. Cook with them, sit with them, give them a neck rub and a warm cup of coffee. In the middle of Psalm 23, there's a little bit of a shift. 
right? It shifts from David describing God in a more distant way, right? It's like, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He makes me to lie down. And it has this little shift in the middle to becoming a very personal conversation. Though I walk through the veil of death's shadow, you are with me, not the Lord, you. You set a table before me. You moisten my head with oil. And it's this personal picture of God that permeates Jesus' teachings. And then finally, let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. Right? This sounds like something that we would expect to happen after we die. Right? I'll dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. But in the Hebrew there, there's no eschatological meaning in this line of the poem. It's a big word. Eschatology is the branch of thought that's concerned with the final destiny of humankind, right? The destiny of the human soul. And this psalm is not referring to like the final destiny of humans, like God is preparing a table for us in this future age. The perspective is present. It's the here and the now, right? So it means that the psalmist, David here, he expects to dwell in the house of the Lord and to experience God's goodness and kindness throughout his present lifetime, and that we then can expect the same. And I thought this might be a helpful thing for us to remember as we're entering into the holiday season, right? Some of us have family spaces that are less than safe, and I know some of you allies, it's the same. Um, It's just remembering that God is with us in those tense spaces, that we can come back into ourselves and that we can center and we can find this joy and this peace and we can sort of recalibrate so that we're able to walk around um, feeling a little bit more, what's the word? Maybe protected, it's not quite what I'm looking for, but sort of protected from the anxiety and the tenseness that can sometimes surround these holiday seasons. All right, we're going to do a couple of things here with the, um, with the meditation. So if you're newer, we like to take a couple of minutes, two or three, of either silence or guided meditation. And I'm going to invite us into a guided meditation, and then I'll end it um, by saying Psalm 23, the King James Version, and if that would be helpful for you, say it with me. Um, But here we'll just get ourselves comfortable, take a deep breath. We know the Spirit is here and permeating. I'd like you to envision a place that is like that, uh, he makes me to lie down in green meadows. And maybe it's not a meadow, but find a place that is beautiful and safe and sort of luxurious for you where you feel calm. And as you're in that space, just picture God however you understand God um, coming up beside you, either as a good shepherd or as a mother or father. And as God comes up and is sitting there among, like next to you and feeling comfortable, maybe think of a place or a space in your life where you're feeling particularly anxious and tense and just confess that to God.
And as you're thinking through that scenario, just picture it almost like you're in the eye of a storm. Like right around you and around God, there's peace, but around you, you can see that there's storms and wind and rain, but you're not touched by it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us to learn to find this space of feeling encapsulated and, and shielded even in the midst of storms that we can experience the peace of God that passes understanding even we're in places where it seems like we shouldn't be able to find that peace and that we would find this connection and this presence with an understanding that we are worthy of being your children and that you are a good shepherd who takes care of us regardless of who we are or what we've done, that we don't earn your love, we don't earn your acceptance, but just because we are, we are beloved by you. I'd like to invite you to say the King James Version of Psalm 23 with me here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. All right, I'd like to invite